Welcome to the Innovation from the Inside podcast. This series is named for an intensive at Size Center for Innovative Thinking at Yale and is a collection of interviews as well as a series of relevant lectures that highlight a key belief, one which we've shared with our students from the very beginning of the semester, that innovation is a practice, a set of principles and repeatable habits to be infused in organizations large and small in service of incubating, developing, and launching the new. I'm Matt Hooper, and on today's episode, we will be hearing from Jim Snabe, Chairman of Siemens and Maersk, and Mikhail Troll, CEO of the Dreams and Details Academy. At a time of tremendous uncertainty, our guests in this episode provided us with a template for navigating that uncertainty and for embracing change. We produced this episode and this series as a whole in order to remind us all that innovation can be achieved anywhere, even or perhaps especially from the inside. As many listeners know, we used a framework provided by the book Dreams in Details, co-authored by Jim Snabe and Mikhail Troll. In this episode, I am thrilled to say that these authors actually joined our intensive via Zoom, of course, and it was one of the true highlights of the semester. Hey, everybody. Thanks for making it on a Thursday, uh, a day we've not yet met, but, uh, but this will also be a, a, a session unlike any we've had before. Uh, Jim and Mikhail, we've been living in your brains and in your writing for about six to eight weeks now, and, uh, and, and so have all of our students as a consequence. The Dreams and Details framework uh, has sort of set up the next 10 or 15 years of, of thinking in business and innovation, uh, but then the future came a lot faster than any of us had expected, right? Uh, we were just talking about this, uh, full disclosure, a few minutes before all the students started trickling in, right, that COVID has actually been the great expediter of a change in the way we work, and it's become the sub-theme of our semester. So my first question to both of you uh, is, is in two parts. The first is, what does it mean in your uh, way of thinking, in your framework, to be an entrepreneur? And are we, in fact, all entrepreneurs in the COVID era? Matt, great question, and hi everyone. It's it's great to be here. Um, I have to admit, I had really looked forward to come to Yale and be at the campus again and meet you all in person. Uh, so, and you know, in that comparison, this seems uh, weird um, and, and certainly not the same uh, as if we had been there. I hope we get a chance in the future somehow. And um, I'm glad to hear that you've been in my brain. I, I didn't know where the enhancements came from, but now I know this is uh, this amazing team here enhanced my brain the last uh, few months. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, I do think that human beings are born um, entrepreneurs and then we, uh, some get to work as entrepreneurs because they, you know, start from a blank sheet of paper and create their own companies and, 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 and others get to be, you know, uh, get a job in a large organization and then large organizations mm -hmm. traditionally have taken the entrepreneurship elements away from people. So it's like, building more and more filters until you behave, you know, so that you're predictable and, you know, compliant and all of that. And, and to a large extent, Dreams and Details was uh, created with the intent to reinvent entrepreneurship in human beings, to unleash the entrepreneurs that are in us all, and in particular, unleash them uh, from the corporate um, uh, framework that um, has built over, let's say, 200 years of industrialization, where we thought, being big is better and being predictable is necessary and everything can be planned. Um, that fits very well in, a, in an era where, you know, it's all about economies of scale 
do more of the same uh, at cheaper costs. Um, and, and where let's say tomorrow or the year after or five years out, you can predict, then you can make the perfect plan to be relevant. Um, and, and we found that uh, logic to be broken um, in a world of technology that is dramatically changing the conditions or fundamental rules in, in any business nowadays, not right. just in IT. And therefore uh, we, we, we sat down and said, so isn't this a little bit like sports where you can't predict what happens in a, in a game. And so you just have to enhance your capability of dealing with whatever happens. And then came COVID. <laughs> and since then, we've all become entrepreneurs. And, you know, I can say many things about COVID and, and all of the issues that come with that and the long-term perspectives. But the good news is it has really allowed us to be entrepreneurs again. It has allowed us to demonstrate our enormous capacity to drive change, even change in our own behaviors. And, and even change of behaviors, which we don't necessarily like because you know, being alone in a room like this is, is not preferable, uh, right. but we deal with it and, and manage it. And, and so in that sense, it proves the need for a new leadership model. It proves that we are entrepreneurs, all of us, uh, and, and we should not uh, unlearn that. And it, it puts us in a situation where unleashing that entrepreneurship is necessary to deal with the current situation and unleash um, the potential of, of, of large organizations who have too much bureaucracy uh, in the past. Uh, but yeah. I'll have, hand over to Michael because he was really the inspiration from the world of sports where, of course, you can't predict the next game. Uh, and, and we thought we could in business. So I was super excited when I met Michael. And he said, no, no, it's about dealing with whatever happens. Uh, so, Michael, over to you. Yeah, and that was actually some of the thoughts that I have had for many years because I'm from biology and, and sports. And there were so many similarities, actually, when I met Jim to the observations that we had had during our leadership path in what worked and what didn't work. And for sure, also in, in, this, in the sports world, we plan a lot. And it's in, back, back in time, it makes sense in, 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 to some ex extent. But, but also now that that is kind of having a totally different uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, scenario. And you can see that in many sports. But the, the interesting part, that I think, here is actually that you more or less, uh, I would say that the virus in some way mutated the approach of leadership DNA. I mean, that is uh, from a biological point of view, a way to say it. That, that actually the mutation is that we now for real realize that we have to do this differently in the future. And COVID enhanced that and, and made that more obvious. Before COVID, we were often talking about the fourth industrial revolution. We were talking about how, ironically, it's not actually really much of an industrial revolution at all. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a revolution to, it's a transition, I should say, to the information age, right? I mean, the joke that we have here in this intensive that I've made probably too many times, and I apologize to everybody for making it, is the, the reason they were called your line managers is because everyone used to work on an assembly line. I mean, when that was the way of working, that was the behavior, that was the way hierarchies existed. And the, the digital revolution of the last two decades has obviously changed that. But COVID, I think, expedited about 15 years of change in about 11 months, maybe, maybe nine months. Um, not many thinkers in the space and I'm not just saying this because you find folks have agreed to be with us today, uh, place the same emphasis on humanity 
in the way these things change, right? For so long, the discussion about this fourth industrial revolution has involved automation, has involved uh, the outsourcing of work. Whereas by creating this framework uh, and specifically the proactive, reactive, active views on, on forecasting, uh, you've, I think, put humans once again, right, the, the people within these organizations at the center of the conversation. How important was the sort of humanity touch to you and the development of this framework? I mean, to me, uh, that was the, um, the essence of this whole discussion. I mean, you could argue that 200 uh, years of industrialization, we put people to do repetitive tasks. <laughs> How stupid is that if you look at in hindsight? That's really stupid. And then we had managers to make sure they did exactly what they were told to do. And we had business plans and we were, you know, follow up that exactly that happened, which means you are limiting people to the creativity of your business plan. Um, and yes, you get predictable outcomes, but mediocre outcomes. And, right. and so um, the, the, the epiphany for me was, you know, I often got that question. So why, why write a book with someone from the world of sports? What is in common? I mean, we don't even have the same purpose. We don't have the same success definition. You know, winning is, is easily defined in sports. It's harder defined in business. You know, I'm in boardrooms where we celebrate that we met our budget. And I'm saying, so what are we celebrating? Our ability to plan? And we're certainly not celebrating our ability to reinvent because then we wouldn't have met our budget. We would have gone way beyond our budget or not at all. Uh, so, so and, and, and the answer to that question is the essence of your question, which is because we're dealing with human beings and somehow we fall in sports and in business, we're dealing with human beings. And I'm arguing that at the end of the cycle, everyone will have access to the same technology, but they won't have access to the same people and they won't be able to unleash the same creativity in those people. And so we, we were kind of distracted by assuming it's all about replacing human beings now with machines, with technology, with robots. And I'm saying, well, the human beings shouldn't have done those tasks in the first place. So now we can unleash human beings from those stupid tasks and create environments in which they can actually be humans, which is about creative, diverse, you know, building on each other. And, and, and that we had forgotten in the age of industrialization. So I actually challenged Klaus Schwab many times and said, don't call it the fourth industrial revolution. It sounds like the fourth version of something we've already done. And this right. is the first, you know, first iteration of a digital world. And I'm trying to argue it's a human centric world where digital enhances human capability and unleashes up from stupid tasks that we can be creative. I, I like, I also just like the idea that 200 years has yielded re re repetitious, as you say, stupid tasks, because I know that's how so many people feel when they're trapped in bureaucracy. But I think bureaucracy also enables, uh, if only this scale, right? I mean, there's a real joy to being an entrepreneur if you do it right. And it's bigger than access to budget and it's bigger than the security of your paycheck as opposed to being a, a proper startup entrepreneur. It's that you can grow something very quickly um, if, if, if you're allowed to, if, if, you, if the requirements are met. What excites you, I guess, now that you're seeing in different pockets of the world, different folks building based on your framework, what excites you about this next wave of entrepreneurship? So I, I'm chairman of very large organizations, uh, Siemens and Mask. Siemens is 173 years old. I mean, but the essence of Siemens is entrepreneurship. You know, Werner von Siemens, you know, created a, a communication device that could actually uh, allow 
people to communicate over long distances without morphing. And so, you know, when I see what's happening, COVID is a great example of that. Why does Siemens perform well in COVID when you could argue economic activity is going down? Why is AP Miller mask? It's 100 years old. You know, again, an entrepreneur that started it, family, you know, inspiration. They are, we just increased our guidance for the full year. So we are, we're doing 50% better than the original plan uh, yeah. for this year. And the plan was done before COVID. But what we did was we empowered the frontline people, the ones that are closest to the action. And, and the stories of Siemens and Mask for me is about combining two things. So you use the word creativity, and I think we need creativity. People are creative. But in order for something to be innovative, you have to multiply the creativity with scale. Yeah. I.e., you do that creative thing at large, in large markets with many customers, not just one. Uh, and I think that's why I'm so eager to make the elephant stance, so to say, the large organization stance with 350 thousand people around the world, if they become creative at scale, that really has an impact in this world. We can make energy systems sustainable. We can make transportation autonomous. We can make manufacturing automated and, and individualized. Uh, and, and so this has, this is the essence for me is the combination of the creative mind of human beings put in a, in a system where you have that creative, the relevant creativity scaled to impact and create a better future. That's the opportunity we have and COVID accelerates that in my opinion. So Jimmy McHale, I, I, what do you think of the timing in an entrepreneur's career for uh, wanting to challenge assumptions? I think the reason I'm so inclined personally to say make your numbers for the recently hired is because you don't yet know the rules of the game if you're a new hire. You don't want to be the one who comes in and just shakes things up and could potentially be read as uh, uh, misinterpreting or mistreating an existing corporate culture. So for those that are recently hired and are thinking entrepreneurially or thinking that they want to be internal transformers um, and disruptors, what is your take on the timing of that? Is there ever a good time? Can you be too early in, in a company uh, to, to want to sort of switch things up if it's only your first month there? I think it's a, it's a super question. I put myself here on the challenge assumption side. And of course your question is valid. You're basically saying, you know, when do you have permission to do that? Because you need right. to be credible first. Um, I, I often hire from the outside in organizations that are stuck in their old assumptions because the new people have different assumptions. Um, and in, if you really want to reinvent, you need those new assumptions or challenging of the assumptions. Uh, you need that to happen at, at high speed. Um, so the way to do this, so I, I think new people have permission to challenge assumptions just because they're new. <laughs> and the best way to do that without losing credibility is actually go and, and see reality. So when I started as a chairman, at Siemens or even at Maersk, I went out and visited locations. I said, I want to visit all major lines of business, all divisions in major geographic locations. So in, in Siemens, that was typically, we had at the time 10 divisions and, and I went to visit each one of them. I met real people who showed real stuff. And I went to three geographies, uh, Germany, China, and the US. And at Maersk, I went to, uh, 
think 15 locations around the world to understand what are they doing and ask them a hundred questions. And I was just, let's say, being naive and um, asking questions. Um, and that formed a set of opinions based on facts, on real war stories. And so I could relatively fast thereafter challenge assumptions without being seen as naive because I could refer to, uh, you know, this guy, Peter in Rotterdam, who told me that the container is stuck on the terminal for six days in average. Mm. And, and because of that fact, I got credibility when I challenged assumptions. This assumption was, why is nobody moving the container? Um, and, and there was a stock assumption that, well, you know, leaving the container makes us earn more money. Say, so, well, then we have a problem with our business model. Um, and, and so, so I think this is uh, the, the way I would do it, uh, is basically say, allow the new people to challenge assumptions, but give them a chance to see reality first so they have facts to point at, not just uh, ignorance. Yeah, see, that's the issue. Many large companies in particular, they you know, hire young, very talented people like you know, those on this uh, course, and then they ask them to do repetitive roles and say, hey, why don't you spend a year doing boring stuff so you understand what's going on here? <laughs> and for me, that's the, the, that's the worst you can do. Um, so I, I urge everyone, when you go for an interview and, and you want to find your first job, make sure that your first job allows you to be participating in, allows you to meet customers and, and ask and challenge assumptions. I think it's key. The next day, Jim and Mikhail return for our sixth and final session of the intensive, where after providing insights into the best ways to challenge assumptions, into when it is the right time for a colleague to start presenting their own entrepreneurial ideas, and how design thinking helps companies meet their customers where they are and discover what's real, he answered one final question. Thank you again so much for being here with us now two days in a row. What do you think of this experience? I think this is addressing the biggest issue uh, in particular large companies have is how do you disrupt yourself? Um, I, I actually believe that you can easily find uh, continuous innovation in, in most organizations, but the big breakthrough disruptive ideas tend to be killed because they challenge too many of the current assumptions. Um, and so having an approach where you have some unit a little bit on the side that is allowed to is actually scouting for disruption. Um, is, is looking at, at patterns to identify the opportunities and then be the catalyst for that disruption, I think is key. You know, to create a team like that, I normally call that a dream team. You get, you know, really good people in a dream team and it's fun and it's great. But to have real impact, you actually need to make all teams dream. <laughs> it's not enough that you have a dream team that comes up with, you know, the biggest ideas in the world, the creativity part. I think the world has enough ideas. It's about how do you make, you know, the organization execute on that. When you add scale to creativity, that's when you get innovation and disruption. And, and so the link between the dream team and all teams that dream um, and the focus on execution, which includes also failing fast, is what makes the difference between success and failure. Um, uh, so, you know, and I hope that organizations in the future will allow more teams to dream rather than assuming one little team uh, can be the dream team. Given that we used dreams and details as our framework this semester, 
Having Jim Snabe and Mikhail Troll, the authors of Dreams and Details and founders of the Dreams and Details Academy, join our final intensive was a real thrill. And Jim's belief in the people in a given corporation, it's about the people, not technology. It's about your colleagues, your vision, those intangible human elements, was a fitting way to end our semester. Dating back to the very first lecture, we have been striving to place human-centered work at the heart of the story. If we believe that innovation is a practice, and we do, then people are its practitioners. Now, while this might seem obvious, the innovation discussion does often turn into a pure technology discussion in a large corporation. Does investing in new tech save money? By working with X or Y startup, do we have the chance to generate more revenue? Should we be starting a corporate venture fund to place a series of bets? But none of these questions ask what this sort of work means for an organization's people. We addressed this dissonance between the far-reaching goals of innovation teams with the day-to-day work of corporate colleagues, between a company's vision for the future and the work of its people, on day one. In our first session, with Priceline co-founder and serial entrepreneur and intrapreneur Jeff Hoffman, a Yale alum, we covered how dreams would never become a reality without identifying key stakeholders who could support you. In our second session, Alana Foss of Silicon Valley Bank offered real-life examples of how, through a combination of gumption and organizing your colleagues' best ideas, you can address the details required to launch your entrepreneurial dreams. In session three, our guest was Anne Mette-Toftgaard, who addressed the ways in which her company was platformizing, which was, frankly, the first time we addressed head-on the perils and possible displacement caused by transforming your business so radically from the top down. In this case, it was turning an insurance company into an insure tech platform. The way Anne Meta addressed the challenges faced by her colleagues and customers made clear that people were at the center of her work. In our fourth session, Barrett Krish explained how the reinvention of Time Magazine for our digital era involved working with a team of cross-disciplinary talents for savvy readers and viewers. Once again, this was a story of the power and importance of people on all sides of your entrepreneurial journey. Your colleagues, your customers, the folks reporting to you, and the folks to whom you report. When I was first asked to join SciCity as a specialist to help create this innovation from the inside intensive, I was flattered and eager to build something from the ground up. As my colleagues and I often kid one another, this intensive and this podcast too are innovations built from the inside. What I couldn't anticipate, however, is how the preparation of each lecture and session would force me to consider sometimes for the first time, just why corporate innovation mattered to me. I have been a corporate innovator in my career, and I have spent the past three years helping some of the biggest companies in the world tell their innovation story. What was it that spoke to me about this subject that kept bringing me back? At first, I thought it was the importance of scale. A big organization may not move quickly, but it can get things done at scale, which matters during times of innumerable, seemingly insurmountable problems. You know, kind of like what we're going through now. As soon as we started designing what we'd actually be covering this semester, however, I realized that it wasn't actually the scale that inspired me. Or should I say that it wasn't exclusively the scale? It's the chance to mobilize many people in service of the future, in service of improving and radically reimagining our institutions. It's the people. In the COVID era, we argued, everyone is an entrepreneur. And in the spring, we will be continuing to examine the ways innovation can come from the inside of a large organization, the ways leaders can drive entrepreneurship as we move on from the exclusive realm of corporate innovation to public-private partnerships. 
Jim Snobby is right. It's about the people. <laughs> I'll say it until I'm blue in the face. They're what inspire me. They're what inspire my colleagues. And they're what power innovation. Even, or yes, especially, from the inside. Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you to all of our students. And thank you to all of our guests who joined us each week. I'm Matt Hooper, and we will meet again in the spring as we kick off our second semester. Thanks, folks.